We are in the book of Genesis this morning, and I invite you to turn to chapter 44. It's found on page 38 in the Bibles that are in the seat back in front of you. Genesis is the book of beginnings. It records the beginnings of heavens and of earth and of plant and animal and human life and also human institutions and relationships. Genesis gives us the progressive self-revelation of God. And if you study the book, you will find the three primary names of deity revealed in Genesis. Elohim, Jehovah, Adonai. In the passage we have the privilege of perusing this morning, we continue in our study regarding the sovereignty of God. And up to this point, Joseph has provided the focal point, if you please, regarding God's sovereignty. But today, it is his brother, Judah, whose life portrays the sovereignty of God, and we will see this miraculous transformation of heart, a portrait of repentance, if you please. Judah was the fourth son of Jacob and his wife Leah and the head of one of the 12 tribes of Israel. The other 11 tribes descended from Judah's brothers and half-brothers. Judah's second to the youngest brother, Joseph, was favored and preferred by their father, Jacob, and Judah and his brothers hated him for that. At the age of 17, we learned that Joseph had a dream that indicated that his brothers and even his parents would bow down to him in authority. And he shared that dream with his brothers and their hatred for him grew all the more. So much and so, when they were isolated and in a remote place, when Joseph went to check on them, the brothers plotted, they threw him into a cistern or a pit They were going to leave him there to starve. In fact, it was Judah who said, why don't we just kill him? And Judah had a better idea. He said, tell you what, let's sell him. Only one brother, Reuben, was going to try and save him. But when the brothers went to lunch and Reuben went back to pull him out of the pit, he'd already been sold to a caravan. He was taken into Egypt, and it was there in Egypt that God was with Joseph. And we've already seen and learned where Joseph was elevated to a place of tremendous power in Egypt. In fact, he was second in command, so to speak, to Pharaoh himself. And while he was there in Egypt, he interprets a dream for Pharaoh. And in that dream, he tells Pharaoh, there are going to be seven years of prosperity, seven years of plenty, but then there'll be seven years of famine. And so Pharaoh puts Joseph in charge. And through his wisdom and administrative skills, he stores up grain for this anticipated famine. And true to the dream, the great famine came 
And it affected not only Egypt, but Canaan as well. And so the brothers are sent now, 20 years later, to Egypt for food. They come to get supplies, and Joseph recognizes them, but they don't recognize Joseph. Where we pick up now in chapter 44, this is their second trip to Egypt for food. And Joseph can't help but wonder, he has another brother back home, Benjamin. He's asked them to bring Benjamin. Now why? Because Benjamin is favored as well. And Benjamin is young, and he wants to know for himself, how do they treat Benjamin? And so he asked that Benjamin be brought along because, you see, when he sees his brothers, he can't help but wonder, are these the same selfish, cruel, murderous, scheming, lying brothers? So Joseph comes up with a plan to test their hearts, not only regarding Benjamin, but where they are with God. Verse 1 says, then he commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sack with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of the sack. He again is returning the money that they would have spent for the grain. He's putting it back into each man's sack. And put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. And as soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, up, follow after the men. And when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination, you have done this evil? You see what he's doing? He comes up with a plot. He's gonna take his silver cup and put it in the sack of Benjamin to set these guys up. Now, the passage, we won't linger here, but it does bear we have to talk about this business of divination, the art or practice that seeks to foresee or foretell the future of events through hidden knowledge and supernatural events. Divination is condemned in the Bible in Deuteronomy and in 1 Samuel, but I think here are some points to consider. First, it's clear from this passage that Joseph's use of this divining cup is part of a test for his brothers. He planted the evidence, and in large part, that would link them to a serious crime. So since the cup was part of the setup, it may have not have been used for a divination at all. There's no indication in the passage that Joseph ever used it for divination, but because he's setting his brothers up, he wants to make the cup all that more important. It's not just a cup, it's a silver cup. It's not just a silver cup, it's his special silver cup. It's his divining cup. You scoundrels, you took the cup from him. This is what he's doing. 
It wouldn't have been uncommon either in Middle Eastern cultures, especially among leaders, to have a cup. And so as part of the nobility of Egypt, certainly he would have had one. And we see that here. I think this is all just part of his disguise, the rouge, not so to say that he was practicing divination. We know that whenever God had to speak to Joseph, he did so through dreams and not through the use of any other objects whatsoever. There is now silver in the sack. And so they overtake him and they come to him and he says, look, we don't know what you're talking about. I'm at verse six. They said, why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks, we brought that back from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Here it is. Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die. Oops. And we also will be the Lord's servants. Let it be. So each man lowers his sack because they're confident. We haven't done anything wrong. From the oldest down to the youngest. And when they open up Benjamin's sack, uh-oh, there's the silver cup. The passage says, verse 13, then they tore their clothes. The tearing of one's clothes is an ancient tradition among the Jews, and it's associated with mourning and with grief and with loss. In fact, the very first mention of someone tearing their clothes in all of scripture occurs in Genesis when Reuben returned to the pit and saw that his little brother was gone and he tore his clothes. Several examples of grief and loss in scripture where they would tear their clothes because of the loss. David tore his clothes when Saul and Jonathan were killed. Elisha, when Elijah was taken up into heaven. Job, when he suffered his loss. And Mordecai, when he learned of the plans that Haman had to kill and destroy all of the Jews. Old King Compromise Ahab, when Elijah pronounced a judgment against him and Paul and Barnabas even tore their clothes when the people of Lystra tried to worship them. It's interesting though that in Old Testament, high priests were never allowed to tear their clothes. They were forbidden from tearing. Tearing one's clothes was a public and powerful expression of grief. And it exists today the practice that is continued today, Korea, it's a ritual that's less spontaneous and a little more regulated. The garment now is actually cut by the rabbi at a funeral service, and the bereaved recite words relating to God's sovereignty. One tradition says that the mourner must wear the clothing over their heart, and as it is cut or torn, it symbolizes a broken heart. They're tearing their clothes. We have this 
outward expression of grief and loss, but more important than outward expressions, true sorrow for sin is genuine repentance of the heart. Which brings us to the first evidence we see of repentance in the heart of Judah, and that's in verse 14. Look at it with me if you would. When Judah and his brothers came up to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. They fell before Joseph to the ground. Not only is this the fulfillment of the dreams that Joseph had had, this is now the third time that these brothers have bowed down before Joseph, but it's also evidence that we see in the text of repentance. Judah goes on in verse 16, and Judah said, what shall we say to you, my Lord? What shall we speak? How can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Interesting. Judas says, what can I say? What defense can we offer? How can we justify ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. In some passages, the word iniquity is used. Huh. What is Judah talking about? They haven't done anything wrong. This was a setup. This was staged. They've been framed. What iniquity is Judah talking about? And here is that second piece of evidence, the acknowledgement of sin. The first piece is humility. The second piece is acknowledgement of sin. This word guilt, iniquity, is the exact same word that David used in Psalm 51 when his sin against Bathsheba and Uriah was disclosed. It was there that he says, oh God, wash me thoroughly from my guilt, from my iniquity. And my sin, my iniquity, my guilt is ever before me. It's against thee, it's against thee, God, and you only have I committed this sin. Over 20 years ago, Judah and his brothers committed a great sin. They plotted to kill their brother. They sold him into slavery. They lied to their father. I can't linger here, but the truth, beloved, is there's no statute of limitations on sin. Judah hates what he has done. You see that in his words, you see that in his behavior. Now something else is interesting going on here though. Judah says, we are all in this together. Look again at the text. God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we and the one in whose possession the cup was found. Don't miss this. Note the transformation of Judah's heart. I'm not gonna leave my little brother hanging in the wind. 
If you're going to punish him, you're going to have to punish me. You're going to have to punish us all. Judah steps up as the spokesperson for all of his brothers, and he doesn't attempt to distance himself from Benjamin, which is what you would expect from someone like him. It would have been natural, given his track record, for Judah to say, yeah, Benjamin took it. He's always taking things. We got to watch him all the time. I'm glad you caught him. He doesn't throw Benjamin under the bus. He doesn't turn on Benjamin, nor does he abandon him. Beloved, this is how the body of Christ should react as well. When one of us is hurt, we all should hurt. This recognition that we are joined together in the bonds of faith, this is what makes us stronger together. The supernatural unity that we have because of the Holy Spirit. We are the body of Christ for those who have put their hope and their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, we have one another, and yes, we can assemble together to be with one another, to pray with one another, to sing with one another, to worship with one another. But beloved, don't miss this. We are never alone because it is God Almighty himself who said he would never leave us and he'd never forsake us. He'll never abandon us. You should be encouraged this morning. Judah then explains that he promised his father. He promised Jacob that he would look after Benjamin. He promised his father that he would bring Benjamin back safely. He explains that if anything were to happen to Benjamin, it would deeply grieve Jacob. Look at verses 32 to 34. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. His heart is breaking for the grief that this would cause. How is this even possible? Judah expressing empathy and compassion. Not so long ago, Judah's heart was flamed with rage and anger. Not so long ago, Judah was ridiculing his little brother Joseph, calling him names. It was Judah that despised Joseph to the point that he, he wasn't even speaking to him any longer. It was Judah that proposed that they needed to just kill him and get him out of their lives. Judah was the one who said, throw him into the pit. And it was Judah who came up with the idea, we'll sell him. Judah 
lied to the father, fabricated a tale that Joseph had been killed. He didn't care how Jacob felt then. In fact, Judah resented his father for the favoritism he openly displayed on Benjamin and on Joseph. Judah was selfish, cruel, abusive, insensitive, and violent. But here, right in front of us, we see cruelty replaced with compassion and selfishness replaced with sacrifice. How is that possible? Judah's hard heart is transformed. He's now quick to say yes to God regarding his sin and he's sensitive to the needs of others. I can't leave my little brother. I won't hurt my father with bad news. My father would be devastated and I fear to see the evil that will find him. The story of Joseph is more than a portrait of a man of great faith. It's more than an example of how to be faithful under the worst circumstances. The story records for us the turning point in the history of God's people and a turning point, in fact, in the life of Judah. What we are witnessing in this passage is the miracle, the transformation that occurs with genuine repentance. The evidence is there, humility, hate for sin, acknowledgement of God's sovereignty, quick now to say yes to God and sensitive to the needs of others. Repentance, beloved, starts with the heart. It's that 180 degree turn from sin to God. Repentance is not just sorrow. Repentance is not just remorse or regret. If we took a field trip now over to the jail to the people who were locked up for the many different and varied crimes that they had committed, most of them would be sorrowful and have remorse and regret and would even offer to make restitution to the victims, but that is not repentance. Nor is repentance asking God for forgiveness with the intent to sin again and again. The repentance that's called for in the Bible, the repentance that we witness here is a summons to personal, absolute, ultimate, and unconditional surrender to God as sovereign. And yes, it will include sorrow and regret, but it's so much more than that. In repenting, one makes a complete change of direction. It's that heartfelt sorrow. And all of scripture, beloved, calls for repentance. Repentance is not works. It's not that you earn it by trying to be good. Now hear me clearly, there will be evidence of repentance by your works, but it is not the works that bring about repentance. Repentance is absolutely critical to the Christian life. Isaiah said, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him 
while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have mercy on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. In Acts, Paul summarized his gospel ministry as testifying both to the Jews and to the Greeks of repentance to God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. After his first sermon at the time of Pentecost, they asked him, what shall we do? And Peter replied simply, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. In his second sermon, he says, repent, therefore, and turn again that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Do you not know that God's kindness is meant to lead to repentance? Repentance, my friends, is not a one-time thing. If you have a lawn, you cut the grass, you trim the edges, you pull the weeds. Now, within a short time, you're going to find some weeds in your lawn, dandelions, crabgrass. You must be intentional and diligent to do what is necessary. If you simply ignore the weeds, they will proliferate, they will multiply, they will get bigger, and they will take over your yard. Sin creeps into our hearts, and it has extremely deep roots. An addict will say, I need to manage my problem. I need to regulate it. I need to control it. That's a fool's argument. Repentance is not a one-time thing. And beloved, we all stand in need of repentance. How's your daily prayer life? Are you spending time daily in the Word? Are you using your gifts and your talents and your abilities for service? Are you being obedient to the Word that God has given you? When it comes to this issue of repentance, you don't have to take a running start for 20 years ago or 15 years ago. If we're going to be honest with ourselves, why don't we just take the last hour? As you sat here this morning, were you able to worship and praise God with sincerity? Or were you distracted by work issues, by family issues? by health concerns? Have the idols of money and debt tugged at your heart this morning? Or perhaps your thoughts just wandered off to what you're going to do about lunch. Repentance should be a part of our lives, ever mindful that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, 
Sin is not a word we use very much in the American lexicon. Sin separates us from fellowship with our Creator, God Almighty. We live in a time and in a culture where gossip is called entertainment. Lies are marginalized, tolerated, and ignored. We need to repent. God has never been interested in what you don't have, but he is interested in what is it that you're not willing to let go of. Pride, lust, relationships, money. Sin dissipates. Sin destroys hope. Sin spoils. And sin is contagious. Sin is like cancer. The good news, beloved, is there's a cure. And his name is Jesus. Jesus. Jesus is the cure for sin. Jesus saves, beloved, from the penalty of sin. He saves us from the power of sin in our life. And one day, praise God, he'll save us from the very presence of sin. Whatever it is that you need, Jesus has a supply. Grace, he has amazing grace. Mercy, his mercies are new every morning. Joy, he came that our joy may be full, that the joy of the Lord is in fact our strength. Hope, I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord, plans of good and not evil, to give you a future and a hope. Do you need love? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes on him won't perish but will have everlasting life. Whatever you need, he has a supply. Salvation? The sovereignty of God is revealed in the transformation of Judah. The practical application for us is equally as clear. You say, well, pastor, I've never been thrown in a pit by any of my relatives. Nobody tried to sell me into slavery. Fair enough. Maybe you can't relate to that, but you can relate to this. Have you ever had your feelings hurt by a loved one or a relative or a friend? Have you ever been verbally abused? You ever been frustrated or disappointed? You ever been lied on and mistreated? Perhaps you've been the one who was cruel, abusive, indifferent, selfish. The good news, my friends, is simply this. If God can transform the heart of someone like Judah, there is hope for us all. We see the sovereignty of God miraculously transforming Judah, and we see how the tumblers fall into place 
because you see it is because of Judah that we will have a King David and because of King David and his progeny we will have a Perez and because of Perez we will have a Messiah and it is because of that Messiah we will have Jesus Christ the King the Redeemer and that is why in Revelation he is called the Lion from the tribe of Judah it is God who put the tumblers in place We come to it now. You can't listen to a sermon like this without looking for personal application. The time will have been wasted if there's no personal application. We can all be better stewards of what God has given us, and he has given us much. We can all be better stewards of our time and of our things and of our resources. But I'm trusting that God himself, that the Holy Spirit has brought to your mind right now those things that you need to let go, that you need to turn from and turn to God. Maybe you're a believer and you're just not as enthusiastic as you used to be about the things of God. You've let your personal devotions go. You're not volunteering or serving or helping. Won't you repent? Maybe you're clinging to your money and coveting what others have. Won't you repent? Maybe you're not praying for others as you should. Or perhaps you're sitting here today and you've never trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You've never acknowledged him as sovereign over all creation. We have assembled for this time. As every head is bowed now, and every eye is closed. This is your time with God. If there's something you need to get straight, you get it straight with God now. Confess your sin and purpose in your heart even now to turn from it. Father, I've said what you'd have me to say. We're ever mindful, Lord, of how we fall short every day. Our heart's desire, though, is to serve you. And so we ask, Father, that as we collectively confess our sins this morning, that you would forgive us our sins, that you would clean us up Give us a fresh start. Only you can do it. Only the blood of Christ is sufficient to do it. Hear our cry now, Father, we pray. In the matchless, magnificent name of Jesus. And amen.